We turn to the book of Exodus this morning. You know, God has delivered His people from the land of slavery. The special emphasis there on His people. Uh, they belong to Him. They exist for Him. And because that is true, their life now free from Egypt looks different than the nations around them, than their neighbors. Uh, much of the material we have in the Pentateuch, the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, describes what makes Israel uh, distinct. The Lord saves to sanctify. They're to put away the leaven of Egypt and walk in obedience to their new master. So the people have gathered together, delivered by the strong hand of the Lord. Now what happens? As you sort of brush them off, pat them on the butt, and say, okay, you know, off you go. Go into the land. Um, let's pick it up in verse, or, uh, verse 17 of chapter 13. We'll read through 14, verse 4. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. They moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahirath, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Let's pray together. Father, we have seen the grass wither and the flower fade. But it is your word that stands forever. It is your word that endures. It is your living and active word that speaks to us and shapes us and molds us the greater likeness of our elder brother and Savior. Lord, we ask that You would work that Word now into our hearts and minds. We know You are working to perform Your Word. We know that we will not leave this hearing of Your Word unaffected. Lord, use it to soften us, to grow us, to humble us, and to teach us. We trust You to do this work among us, Holy Spirit. We ask You to do this work. In Jesus' name, Amen. I think my good friend Ben and I decided to uh, use one of my spring breaks to go on a mountain biking trip. And uh, so we packed up the bikes, we threw some clothes in a bag, probably thought nothing of food, two guys going on a trip, and made the seven-hour track from Colorado Springs to Moab, Utah. If you know anything about the mountain biking world, the red sandstone and formations around Moab, Utah. It's, it's a mountain biking mecca, um, at least for the U.S., maybe uh, for the world. 
So the first morning we get there, we're excited for the day's ride, and we decide we're going to tackle Porcupine Rim. And literally, at some point, you were riding along the rim of the canyon. This is about a 15-mile uh, ride. And so we got up early, before it reached 100 degrees by 9 o'clock, and, and we, we set out on this trail. Well, the trail starts out in a climb. And we were pumped. We, we had the energy. So we tackled this trail, and I'm pedaling like a madman. And this is a 5 to 14% grade for three miles. And you probably know where this is going. By about mile and a half, two mile point, I am finished. Like my body is starting to shake. And I'm about ready to lose my breakfast. And so Ben and I pull off the trail and I said, buddy, I can't do this trail. There's no way I'm going to make it the rest of the way. He said, well, just sit there for a little while. We're not in a hurry. You know, eat the orange that you brought with you, a piece of candy. And, and after a while, started to feel better and, and we made it the rest of the way on the trail. It ended up being one of the most exciting and harrowing trails I have ever been on in a mountain bike. But I wanted to turn around in the first hour. Um, maybe you've had an experience like that or something similar where you're excited, you jump in, uh, what seemed like a very good idea at the time, and then things get difficult or things don't work out the way that you were expecting um, and you want to do an about face you want to turn back uh, maybe you're thinking you know this wasn't such a good idea after all um, the Lord knows this he knows our hearts um, he knows how we often respond when faced with something that we're not expecting or we're not ready for You know, and this would, this would be no different for the people of Israel as they left Egypt. Uh, again, Egypt is all they've ever known. Um, this is new and unfamiliar territory for them. You know, are, are they really ready for this kind of a journey? Uh, how much uphill could they take? How much battle coming right out of Egypt? In our passage, the Lord uh, continues to show the people, and He's going to show us that He is in control, that he knows what's best for them when the way of the promised land seems to be so clear, so obvious. And he shows them by his very presence and the path that they're going to follow. So we're going to look at those concepts in the order that we come across them uh, here in the text. Path and presence. You know, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line in most cases. Um, for the people to go from, from Goshen in Egypt to Canaan, the straightest path is going to be eastward along the, the southern part of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, it was a very well-traveled route along that coastal highway, and it was also a very well-guarded route. Uh, there's Egyptian forts along the way, uh, and it would go right into the territory of the Philistines and the ancestors of the Philistines. So not, not only was the Egyptian military a force to be reckoned with in that day. But if there was any force that would reckon with them, it would have been the Philistines. Um, they could fight. They, they would sometimes make raids into Egypt. Um, and the people of Israel, when you think about this, the people of Israel, when they complete their conquest under the leadership of Joshua, if we can call it complete, who's still around? Yeah, it's the Philistines. Um, that territory is still unconquered. It wouldn't be until much later under David's 
leadership. We finally see this Philistine uh, territory subdued. Um, But the people of Israel are not ready for this. Um, They're not going to take this path without confrontation or without conflict. And whether they know it or not, God knows. He's the one leading him. He is the one who determines their path. Verse 17, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines. And verse 18, but God led the people around the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. God understands His people and mercifully directs their path. And there are a few interpretive points here in verse 18 that kind of help us understand the path or at least the picture we have of the people leaving Egypt. Uh, instead of due east, they're now they're, they're going south, southeast into the wilderness where they're going to encounter more of the, the waters between the Mediterranean, that Gulf of Suez. If you're looking at me, I'm the Red Sea. You know, it's got the two antenna, those two arms. Okay, this is the big one over here. This is the Gulf of Suez. And now, now we have that Suez Canal that connects the Mediterranean. Um, and we don't know the exact path that the people are following, but they're moving in the direction of those there's some large lakes in that area, more water um, from the Gulf of Suez and we might observe today. Um, and what we read as the Red Sea is the sea or the lake of reeds. Uh, a lake or part of that gulf uh, that could not be crossed on foot. Um, and we also read in our English translation that the people went out of Egypt equipped for battle. And unfortunately, that doesn't, doesn't give us a very accurate picture of what is... Uh, happening here, of what's being conveyed. Um, the image we have in our minds is swords, spears in hand, helmets, you know, ready to charge. That's not likely the picture we have of the people uh, leaving Egypt. Uh, they're moving with their families. They're moving with their household goods in groups and divisions of about 50 people. That's what's captured in the language. Um, it, it comes out of that word that we find in verse 18. The New King James actually has a much more helpful rendering the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. So there is order here. Uh, they, they look like they're, they're divided into these, these smaller companies of 50, looking like uh, battle companies moving out. Um, so though they may be ordered and formed for battle, they're not trained for battle. Um, they likely have very few weapons with them uh, at this point. So God does not immediately bring his people out and, and, and move them right into conflict. Uh, he guides them wisely to the south. And then, then he changes their path in 14 verse 2. So now is it not, not only the most direct way into the promised land on this journey, now he turns them back. Again, we, we don't know the exact location of, of what these are very real places, an ancient Egyptian map, but moves them back north then towards the Mediterranean, Migdal, or this tower fortified area, it was quite close to the Mediterranean Sea. You think, what is God doing? This path makes no sense. You know, what compass are we following here, Moses? Okay, from a strategic standpoint, this, this is absolutely crazy. It traps the people between the water, between uh, Egypt. Uh, places where they could certainly be observed by the Egyptians and others. It, may, it also makes them look crazy. They, like they have no idea where they're going. They're heading south and they turn around and go north. They're lost. Which is exactly what God wants Pharaoh to think. 
that they're lost. They don't know which way to go. Maybe their God has left them, which means they're trapped in their mind. See, Egyptian gods were not omnipresent, uh, at least to the Egyptians. They, they could come, they could do their work of, of provision and then leave. So perhaps to Pharaoh, in the mind of the Egyptians, the God of the Hebrews has done the same thing. He's done his work and he has left. He's brought them out of Egypt, now they're on their own. The path that God takes his people, it doesn't make sense to them which we're going to see clearly next week in the rest of this chapter. But this is God's path for them. What looks like a trap for Israel is really a trap for the Egyptian army. And there's some great examples of this throughout history, military deceptions over the years. I was thinking of a modern example, you know, in early June 1944, the most complex military operation in history. And all of the you know, where are the Allies going to land? And all the, the misinformation, false information that was communicated weeks, months before, and the, the decoys and all of these things um, before the uh, landing at Normandy. How about, a, how about another example from Scriptures we find later in Judges with a man named Gideon. Um, he has a relatively few number of troops. Three groups of a hundred. He says, here, take the jar and the torch. That's all you need. And they surround and break the jars and yell and, and the Midianites are freaked out. They start killing each other, running. Um, the Lord is leading the hardened Pharaoh into a trap. But his people must follow his lead. They must learn to follow the path that takes them into this promised land for their own good, for God's glory. Uh, to look to Him as their guide, especially when they do not understand the path. You know, our, God, our God knows which way is best. He knows the path for you, for your family, for the church. Um, he'll, he'll lead us on that path. Um, the greater question, which we find answered in Proverbs 3, for example, is do we trust Him to do this? We really trust Him to direct our paths and take us where we need to go. Because sometimes we don't want to go. It's a path that we would not choose to take. Lord, I've worked so hard for this, but it's, it's just out of reach. Lord, you, you've taken everything that I've worked so hard for. Lord, where are you taking me? I don't understand this path. And this doesn't mean we don't ask questions or cry out to the Lord. We see Job doing this. We're going to see Moses doing this more often. David did this a lot. But that cry comes in submission to the authority and perfect rule of our God who knows the path that we do not. Well, it looks to be that the shortest and easiest, most obvious a way to us on this journey of faith, the wilderness road, it may not be the best. Um, God is our good shepherd, after all. His sheep know His voice, and they follow His lead. 
Our shepherd guides us and leads us in paths of righteousness. He leads us in water, to waters of rest because He followed the path of His Father and ours to the end. Okay, it looked like a trap, right? A clear defeat as Jesus moves toward the cross. I mean, you can just, you can just hear Satan. You can hear him snickering. He's lost. His God has left him. He's mine. But the real trap is set. What looked like a defeat at the cross has actually gained eternal victory over the enemies of God. Paul would say of God the Father in Colossians 2, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him, in His Son, our Shepherd and Passover Lamb. So, Because Jesus followed this, this path that the Father placed before Him, the lies of Satan, the power of sin, has no lasting hold on us. So when your path looks like a trap, or it's winding right through the valley of death, know that the Lord goes before you. That your good shepherd has not only been there, but he's there with you now. He's near, present with you. That's where we move next. The people of Israel would know the Lord's presence on this journey. The path is going to change. They wouldn't understand it. But the Lord was near. Verse 21, it says, The Lord went before them in a pillar of cloud during the day, and at night it was a pillar of fire. Um, and this isn't just you know, the, the cumulus clouds like we've seen this last week in abundance. Um, the Lord you know, sort of puts in front of them and says, Okay, follow that cloud. Now, this, is, this is His very presence with the people. As He appeared in fire to Moses in the wilderness, it's now unmistakable to the people who is guiding them. The Lord, the one who spoke with Moses, was with them in power and majesty and judgment. Presence, power of God represented in a cloud as fire. It's consistent throughout the scriptures. It's going to be a cloud that covers Mount Sinai. People would see it as, as fire and hear the thunder from below as they looked upon the mountain. The cloud of God's presence and glory would fill the tabernacle and later uh, the temple. The New Testament on the Mount of Transfiguration, it was out of the cloud that the Lord speaks. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And what looked like fire settled over the people at the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. So in cloud and fire, the people can see that the Lord is near without being consumed. So wherever the cloud moved, by day or by night, that's where the people move, even if they didn't understand. You know, even if they didn't understand, it would have been a comfort to know that God was with them. I mean, here's this cloud that perhaps shaded by this cloud during the heat of the day or warm by its presence during the cool nights. Whatever path the Lord led them, uh, they could be confident of His presence. Um, and this was a confidence that the patriarchs had. Life in the promised land is that picture of, of life anew, freedom under the blessings of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, now you can add, add Joseph to that list. Right? Verse 19. We read in Genesis 50 that it was Joseph's desire to be buried where God's people, where faithful Israelites would be buried. He had every confidence 
in God's promise to bring them back to the land. Hebrews 11. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Hey, don't just toss them in the Nile. God's coming. Take me with you. (laughs) Joseph, before he died. Back in March, we went to the cemetery uh, following my grandmother's funeral. And uh, where her body was put into the ground, uh, there were other plots in that corner of the property for my grandfather and my parents and a few of the other uh, family members to be buried. Uh, So in a way, there is an exception, uh, not an exception, an expectation that they would join the family in burial. Um, They await that great resurrection day. Um, I think of the great efforts of our armed services to, to transport the body of a fallen soldier back to the United States. Can't always happen this way. We do that back, back to the homeland to be buried in that place of freedom and among family. You know, with this picture, I, I find it interesting. I've never had this conversation with a, a Christian family or been asked this by the family uh, at the death of a loved one. Uh, it's not typically my place to bring this up, but whether they should choose to take the body in the casket and bury that body or, or cremate that body. I've never observed a family wrestle with that decision. Uh, and sometimes, you know, like I said, there's not a choice. But many times there is a choice. Um, and I think it's very important for us to consider not only the tradition of the church, but the message that is being conveyed and protected when we place the body in the ground in expectation of the resurrection. The body of our Lord was placed in the ground. He came forth out of the tomb. You say, well, Brad, you know, the Lord can create glorified bodies out of the dust. Ashes. You know, he's going to do that for countless uh, Christians who have gone before. And absolutely he can do that, but that's not the point. Um, the use of fire in the New Testament is one of purification judgment. Heavy on the judgment. And the wrath of God... Um, as you start reading through Revelation. So for us to willingly submit the bodies of our loved ones to be consumed by fire is not the best message or picture that we can convey of our life now and forever in Christ. Um, And I realize it's often for financial reasons that we burn instead of bury. I think it would be a far healthier practice for the church to sort of push back against this trend. Um, if it's a financial strain, let's figure out how to do it as a church. Come alongside each other the burden, carry each other's burdens so that we can bury the bones of our brothers and sisters. Okay, there was something better to come for Joseph. and something better to come for all the people leaving Egypt. There, there was an expectation that they would live and die in the promised land. So taking the bones of Joseph with them. That was an act of trust, confidence uh, in the Lord's presence and His promise. Uh, Every time we put the bones in the ground uh, today, it's an act of trust, confidence in the Lord's uh, coming. Uh, So let's apply this just a little bit more. 
We're not saved, we're not delivered from the slavery of sin and then left to our own devices. We're left to chart our own course. Uh, you know, we can start to drift back into the early debates of the church where some would claim that God in His, in His grace saves, but then it's up to, up to us to stay saved. To walk the right path of obedience. You know, if, if we're going to reach that finish line. You know, to get there, you better work harder. You better do better, um, or else. And uh, and this discussion is much much broader than we have time for. But uh, you know that message, you better do better or else, is being preached right now all over this town, uh, in some way, some version. Uh, don't worry, be happy. God's loves you and He wants you to be happy. Some version of that. It's not the message we're confronted with here or throughout God's great story, which is which is open in front of us. It's about God's presence with His people going before them and they're following Him. The Lord must be present. He must lead if we're going to go anywhere in the Christian faith. God's grace and His sovereign rule extends to life on the path. To our growth as Christians. We need to guard against this self-help mode. God saved me, now it's up to me. If our growth as Christians, meaning our love for Jesus, our desire to, to be more like Him, if that's dependent upon our discipline or our willpower, then we're finished before we start. God must lead us. He must finish the work that He's begun in us. And He will certainly do this. He's with us now, not in a visible cloud, though sometimes we would like to see that on this journey of faith. We have something even better. He's with us by His Spirit. The glory of God in us, John says in chapter 14. A couple chapters later in John 16, we're told that the Spirit guides us into all truth. Remember those, those images of the cloud resting on the mountain in the tabernacle? 1 Peter chapter 4, we hear that the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. So we can walk the path, we can put one foot in front of the other on this journey only because the down payment of our eternal inheritance is with us, leading us, showing us Christ. Is it clear for you? Is it clear for your family who is guiding you? Is it clear to others who you're following? You know, practically, how we prioritize, organize the time that God's given to us, it will show us this. It will show the voice or the voices that we're listening to and led by. Where do you turn for counsel? Who do you trust for life's major decisions? We should be a people of prayer. If we're wearing out our knees in prayer, that's a pretty good indicator of who is guiding us, who we're trusting along the way. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says this to the church, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we may not desire evil as they did. 
Paul's telling this young church, using Old Testament reference, that the people of Israel here, they're really without excuse. Okay? They were under the cloud. They could see, know the desires of God who is among them, who is leading them. Yet so many of them perished. They did not believe and trust in the presence of God with them. Did not believe and trust in His leading and His feeding of them. So church, just as, as the cloud went before the people, so Christ goes before us now. He'll supply our needs because He knows those needs better than you do. He'll supply them for His glory. We can't miss that. We're going to end with that. God's going to get the glory. Verse 4. That's the purpose behind this path and this trap that's being set for the Egyptian army. And most of the time we default to, you know, how do I get the glory? How do I look good? How do I save face in the midst of this mess? And we miss the point of the trial or the particular path that the Lord has taken us. He guides us for His glory. So your experiences in the Christian life, the path that you, you are on right now, is because He is leading you, not because He's left you. Trust His heart for you. Trust His faithfulness. When you think you know the path, and especially when you don't. So that you can sing with the psalmist, for you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to do this. For we do not know the way to go. We think we do. Or deepen our trust in you as the one who guides us, as the one who leads us in this path in the wilderness. Lord, grow our, our delight in you and a willingness. Help our unbelief, Lord, show us the way. And we're grateful that you are present with us doing that even now. In these moments, as we go from this place, leading us as we trust you. Oh, what a blessed thought this is. In Christ's name, amen.